0: Hi everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of Risk and Regulation Rundown, giving you the latest insights and analysis on hot topics in financial services risk and regulation. I'm Andrew Strange, and I lead our Financial Services Regulatory Insights team, and I'm your usual host. In this month's episode, we're going to be talking about the operational resilience agenda. With increased regulatory scrutiny over the last number of years, and recent economic and market conditions reminding us of the volatility that firms can face, we're going to explore what's new in this area. Today I'm joined by two guests, Duncan Scott from PwC's Crisis and Resilience Practice and Paul Williams, a Specialist Advisor on Operational Resilience for PwC and formerly from the PRA. Hello to you both.
1: Hello,
0: hello. So Paul, let me start with you first. As I mentioned at the top, you've had experience of working on both sides of the operational resilience regulatory process, developing the rules as a regulator and then also working with clients to help implement them. Let's start with your, your regulator hat do you want to just take a moment to remind our listeners of the, the history of operational resilience, where it came from, what problems regulators were trying to fix, uh, the key requirements, and I'm sure all the firms are totally on top of this, but maybe just a reminder of the deadlines and timelines that people should be working to. Okay, we will do. So I guess the roots of this go back uh, almost a decade, actually.
1: We started to see increasing numbers of operational failures, uh, mainly within banks actually. So the roots are probably within the banking sector specifically. Operational failures that were occurring within firms that were having significant external impacts uh, on customers or markets. uh, And That was sufficient, let's remember, to prompt Parliament and the Treasury Select Committee to conduct a review into IT failures in the banking sector, which which ran alongside the policy development work that we were doing. And that was despite the existence of a number of existing non-financial risk management requirements that firms had, IT risk management, business continuity risk management, operational risk management. So the observation was that despite all of those things already existing, a further public policy intervention was required in order to get firms thinking about non-financial risk or operational resilience in a slightly different way and that was the that was the purpose of the policy. Um, The two key dates associated with its implementation the first was March 22 where firms needed to have established essentially a baseline analytical and reporting capability that helped them understand where they had gaps in their operational resilience uh, through the lens of that policy and then march 25 which is where firms should have then plugged all of the gaps that were identified by that previous reporting deadline
0: Okay, so we're very much in the middle of that at the moment. So this is therefore very topical, I agree. So, I mean, let's pick up on a few things that you mentioned there and let's go into a bit more detail. Can you give us your perspectives on the policy approach that regulators have taken on this? Uh, And crucially, I guess, for firms, what are uh, some of the challenges you've seen with this approach? There's two
1: two key things to note, I guess. One is that no two firms are going to be the same in terms of where they are on their operational resilience journey and the challenges that they face. Uh, There are are many challenges. It's a complex problem covering a number of areas. Uh, The the vertical silos, if you like, of people, property, technology, third parties, are all areas that firms will need to address as part of uh, implementing an operational resilience approach. So it's very difficult to prescribe how you fix that problem in detail. It's fortunate then that the UK financial services regulatory approach is one that's based on principles and outcomes rather than standards per se. And the defining characteristic, I think, of this policy is it is uh, very principles and outcomes based. In fact, it's probably one of the most principles and outcomes based policies that the UK regulators have issued in a very long time. And that's, uh, that's relevant for firms, particularly where there's various ways of addressing this, because it creates the space for firms to stop, to think, to reflect and to innovate and to implement a solution which works best for them. Of course, the downside of that approach is it requires firms to stop, to think, to innovate and to work out what works best for them. Uh, and so where firms might be predisposed to a regulatory compliance based approach, they're going to they're run into challenges with that.
0: Yeah, some, some creative thinking rather than box ticking is certainly going to be part of that. OK, that's interesting. I mean, and, and clearly at the moment in the current market, we're seeing some volatility. So I think it, it's pretty obvious that some global events and crises um, are making life pretty challenging for firms. Duncan, what is it about the nature of the environment right now that makes it even more disruptive and therefore crucial that firms embrace operational resilience?
2: Well, I think you've started to make the point there already, Andrew. It's, it's a really disrupted time at the moment. And this comes from someone who started their career at the pop of the uh, dot-com bubble, lived through the financial crisis. And it's your fault then. <laughs> Not specifically my <laughs> fault, but I, I've seen quite a lot over the years. Um, and looking at the last five or six years, I would say I haven't seen this level of disruption in the previous 14-15. So right. as you mentioned, we've had the likes of uh, Brexit, we've had the, to deal with covid geopolitical issues of late and then the market volatility of right now all of those things mean that firms have to be agile and they need to be resilient so taking practical approaches to it is all important because it's a practical problem that needs solving so I mean bringing that a little further to life and having conversations earlier this year with a lot of firms who are seeking to understand the impacts of geopolitical change and, and and volatility actually relatively few perhaps the minority of firms were using what they created and were starting to build around resilience to address those points and that's something that needs to change. So as, as you asked the question it is a really volatile time which brings even more emphasis on the need to be resilient.
0: Okay uh, and clearly you've been talking to lots of our, our clients about this topic, I know you've been helping lots of our clients with it. Wh- what are you seeing from firms to date in, in responding to those regulatory requirements And what are are some of the areas of challenge that that our firms have experienced, thinking particularly about some of those deadlines maybe that Paul Paul mentioned?
2: Yeah, so I think on the positive side of things, I think the nature of what it means to be resilient and thinking about what is most important actually is an intuitive concept. It makes a lot of sense. And actually in 2018, when Paul and his colleagues uh, launched the, the discussion paper, Firms actually started working at that point, which I think, Andrew, you and I have worked on various regulations over time. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes not, not it's not at all. It's more brinkmanship. It's more brinkmanship and hoping it might get pushed out and there'll be delays. In this case, it made sense because it has a com- commercial imperative alongside a regulatory one. So, on the good side, firms engaged with it and recognised some of those benefits. The challenges, however, are some of those restraining factors within firms around feeling it is a compliance exercise and something that needs to be box-ticked, as you mentioned. Um, and that doesn't lead to the right sort of outcomes here. I mean, Paul um, and I often talk to clients about being focused on outcomes and what that actually means. Um, and by taking a compliance-based approach, you really fail to deliver those benefits. Um, some of the other challenges are around getting that ownership in the first line of the organisation for those that own the the most important services to feel accountable. Um, The challenge there is that they're revenue generating, they're focused on developing the organisation and actually the operational delivery has largely been a shared responsibility. It remains shared, but there's a focal point for it now and that's one of the changes um, that exists. Um, And actually one of the bits of feedback we've had across the industry and we've seen is that there's quite a lot of reliance on existing testing measures without making a step change towards operational resilience based testing. So what that means is business continuity is something that people will spring back towards or they will look at operational risk type testing, so ICAP and others, at the expense of really focusing on operational resilience and those scenarios that are going to cause them problems to respond to and are actually going to be more enlightening.
0: Okay and it's interesting when I think about some of the recent podcasts we've done around things like consumer duty where again it's that avoiding that compliance tick box approach actually thinking about, about the outcomes of what you're trying to achieve that's re- it's really interesting. So I mean uh, to all those lovely people out there listening to this podcast what advice do you have for them? What are the, some of the key things they should be focused on? Uh, I don't mind who goes first on that.
1: Why don't I go first? So uh, I think it's important to just reflect on the previous points that Duncan and I have both made and this comes up in lots of the conversations we have with clients at the moment which is um, lots of the client questions always what does the regulator want when have we done sufficient testing have we got the granularity of important business services right what's the right answer to uh, the impact tolerance question and the answers to all of those questions are probably best answered with another question at least that's what's likely to happen if you ask supervisors those questions which is well why do you think this is the right answer as a firm? So, uh, my advice to firms is to uh, put yourself as far as you're able into the minds of the regulator and think about the problem they were trying to fix. And this was a thoughtful intervention, public policy intervention, try and set out some uh, cornerstone concepts that firms should pick up on, which will allow them to fundamentally think differently about non-financial risk within their firm and how it's managed. The temptation will be to focus on policy compliance obviously, and that's that's uh, that's you're going to have to lean against that and focus on your journey from an operational resilience point of view and recognize there are there are many ways of addressing this problem, but you've got to think thoughtfully about that and be prepared to engage uh, with supervisors in a way that um, allows you to demonstrate how you've really taken this to the heart of your business. So supervisors will be really alert to uh, any sniff that this looks like regulatory compliance, and actually will be asking leading questions to try and see, has this really been taken to the heart of how you think about non-financial risk within your
0: firm in the long term? Yeah, I agree. Duncan, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah,
1: just
2: a, a, a couple of quick points I would say. So one is that there's been a lot of work in the industry to get to the point that we're at now so identifying what's important setting impact tolerances and and many of those things actually those in of themselves don't create resilience they're a lens to place over your organization to understand how it operates if you think about the mapping element of it or the point at which intolerable harm could manifest but actually they don't change the dial, they don't make the step change that the regulators are seeking to achieve on their own, it's the next step that does and that is investment decision making and using insight from that information. I think there's a slight disconnect in some cases where work has been done, methodologies created, frameworks that exist that are embedding but they're not actually driving resilience um, as an agenda for firms. So. Really focusing on that and what happens next is, is what's really important. And then allied to that is the fact that Paul has spoken about this March 25 deadline. That's going to be a, upon us sooner than we think. It's going to come very fast. And to bring that further to front of mind is the fact that that's probably two investment cycles for firms. Yeah, barely. Unless they change their way of operating, which some firms have done in response to this. So it's had quite far-reaching uh, implications for firms, but two investment cycles. It's a very short time in uh in banking
0: yeah it is that's very interesting um i'm also drawn slightly here to, to paul's point around the because you referenced it a couple of times that the public policy agenda that sits behind this as well this isn't just a a regulatory own initiative type thing actually there's there's multiple levels to this in terms of public policy objectives regulators doing stuff and then as you say Duncan it's the first stage response and then going that extra step as well so it's it's really multi-level compared to some of the more traditional compliance type topics that we've maybe maybe covered on this podcast before so it is feels very different yes bit scary but different Um, I don't like change, that's what it is. Um, So I mean, clearly, uh, a lot of our clients uh, obviously um, uh, have presence in the UK. But this must be something that that people are thinking about globally. Um, You know, the the global financial crisis, I think the clue was in the title. Um, So there must be an international angle to this that firms are also having to think about. Uh, is there any particular progress in other jurisdictions th- um, that, that's interesting for us in terms of operational resilience? And to what extent has there been any coordination on this? Or are we seeing that, that slightly awkward, divergent approach?
2: Well, perhaps I can give a bit of an overview, and Paul might want to add a bit around that sort of convergence and the dialogue between regulators. Um, I'm really fortunate in the fact that I get to chair a particular group across the PwC network of FS operational resilience uh, specialists. So we've got people from... Uh, sort of 14, 15 countries that come together to talk about operational resilience. Um, so we get a good perspective on this subject. Um, I think the things that I would pick up on are that actually there's a surprising level of harmonisation um, internationally from my own perspective. I'm surprised quite by where we've got to. There are some differences and I'll highlight those but in general um, there's a understanding that this is about outcomes, as we've emphasised many times, and there are different ways of getting there, but but some similarities. So the differences perhaps worth pulling on. So if you think about somewhere like the UK and Ireland, where they have very similar approaches, Ireland having followed the UK's approach, um, there's a big focus on the consumer and harm uh, on the basis of being focused on uh, conduct agendas. In some other Um, locations, actually that part is less prevalent and it's more about the safety and soundness of the firm and the integrity of markets, which it is also the case in the UK and Ireland, but the emphasis is slightly less on consumers in other locations. The other differences that can come through as well are around the source of the regulation. So in the UK it's standalone, or it's separate, it's very clear that it's operational resilience. In others, so if you look at Hong Kong, for example, it's weaved in through uh, business continuity and the same with the MAS in Singapore. So it may just be that regulators are finding the easier way or the path to get that into their agendas in the right way. But what you can tell is that in the UK, there's a step change being asked for. In others, that may well still be the case, but it's perhaps not represented in quite the same way. Um, But one thing that has happened is by virtue of the UK going first... We've got first mover advantage or, in fact, could be disadvantage depending on how it turns out. Um, Everyone is looking to the UK for how it's working and operating and largely looking to follow or emulate or change on that basis. So it's an interesting time for us to innovate, as Paul mentioned, to come up with ways of doing things that others can then look to leverage and use.
0: Uh, it's interesting, I think, about the, the, the growth plan that we have in the UK from, from the UK government around financial services. And, you know, in September, the growth plan specifically referenced the deregulatory agenda, for example. Th- this doesn't feel like something where where deregulation is going to be part of the answer, though. You know, we're ahead of the curve. Where, you know, Actually, the safety and soundness of our market gives us a competitive advantage, and therefore it's, it's going to remain important, if not it'd be more important, actually, over time.
2: I think as you as you express, expressed it Andrew, um, the way we tend to look at this is that operational resilience isn't just its own specific regulation there to be ticked off, it is more like a wave of regulation. So if you were to go back to the financial crisis the response was capital and liquidity based prudential regulation, then as the regulators decoupled there was a strong consumer agenda, now we're moving into the operational phase. So it's at that level that the regulation offer, you know, operates. Um, rather than at a specific, um, you need to tick this one off.
1: The, s- the strength of the regulation, I think, lies in its simplicity. And there's a, there's a level of deceptive simplicity about it. And that's why I think there's a high degree of international coordination or consensus around operational resilience policy. Lots of jurisdictions will have their own business case, if you like. They won't all have experienced the UK's banking technology resilience issues, perhaps. Um, but the, the the policy requirements of identify what you care most about, know how much disruption you could absorb, test that, change it, retest from it. It's all it's all bit motherhood and apple pie, isn't it? So it's very difficult to look at that and say, well, that's a bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, I think that's why you it's it's easy to get international consensus. The devil's in the detail around how you actually implement that on a on a jurisdictional basis. Um, And whilst you might see uh, variations in how those requirements are articulated across jurisdictions, that will typically be either a product of the journey that those jurisdictions have been on and how hard the resilience business case is biting, um, or the the objectives, the statutory objectives that are driving those regulatory agendas and how they need to articulate them. if you compare the UK's operational resilience policy requirements with the Basel requirements, for example, which were very close together in terms of their implementation, there's nothing in the Basel requirement that uh, contradicts what's in the UK re- uh, requirement, but they are articulated in a, in a quite different way yeah. relative to that.
0: Yeah. Okay, and, and we're, we, we see that from international bodies versus uh, domestic regulators and European regulators and things in other areas too. Okay, interesting. I mean, uh, so clearly a lot's already happened in this space in terms of regulation. Um, I was thinking back, there was a paper we produced around impact tolerances, which feels like it was about 200 years ago, but probably only a few <laughs> years ago. Um, we've talked about the, the 2022 deadline and obviously the 2025 deadline coming up. But what else is happening? I mean, what's, what's the next couple of years look like in terms of regulation? Uh, and what should we expect to see UK regulators?
1: Uh, Two things come to mind from my point of view. One is already visible, there's an active discussion paper on critical third parties which is highly relevant to the overall topic of operational resilience. Uh, that's, That's worth paying attention to although I guess the headline from that from my point of view is there's nothing in that discussion paper which uh, alleviates the accountability on firms to do their own due diligence on third-party assurance. So firms should be careful when reading that, that they don't read too much into the objectives of that. That discussion paper, uh, of my reading of it, is very much about addressing the systemic concentration risk that's arising from the from the digitalisation and, and use of third parties across our industry. And then I think uh, the second one is going to be how well are firms doing on actually addressing what the policy was seeking which is um, material improvements in firms own self-awareness of their operational resilience capability and fixing the gaps that come from that and that's what uh, supervisors will be seeking and that's uh, that's what the public opinion and appetite will be seeking by the time we get to 2025 are we more resilient than we were so expect supervisors to be doubling down on it's all well and good talking about frameworks and governance and processes and how you're thinking about it the so what of that will be really important, which is can you demonstrate that that's having a meaningful impact on the operational resilience of your firm, particularly through the lens of externally delivered services?
0: Uh, and That's really interesting. And I guess the other thing that springs to my mind is is clearly in the Financial Services Markets Bill, we also have the potential ability of um, Treasury to designate into the scope of, of the bank and the FCA certain third party outsource functions too, which... Again, kind of just expands that remit slightly more for the regulators, and and I guess continues that focus. So uh, it's interesting. Okay, thank you both. I mean, uh, typically at the end of these things, I I ask for just a very short, brief, uh, final message for you. But I mean, what actually, what one piece of advice, what one thought would you leave with our listeners today? And uh, Duncan, let's start with you.
2: Well, I think my my main point here is that the need to be resilient isn't going away, and in fact, the case for being resilient is getting stronger than ever it provides real benefits to firms i think there's a need to embed what's being created but not just do that but live and make them sustainable that's one of the biggest challenges we're finding across the market is making this work over time and exist well beyond 2025 when we get to that particular deadline so in a dynamic and challenging environment which we we have here responding well to disruption is going to be important and in fact could well turn out to be a differentiator where others are failing and you're able to stay
1: live. Brilliant. Paul? Um, It doesn't matter how enthusiastic or knowledgeable the practitioner, the operational resilience practitioners are within firms. There's only so far that uh, those practitioners can take the organisation on the successful implementation of operational resilience, building on Duncan's point. That needs to be met with top-down, executive-level engagement on operational resilience to create the environment within which those practitioners can be successful. Because there's a heavy element of, of organisational culture about this. One of, the, one of the innovations in the policy is a requirement to acknowledge that bad things will happen, that failure is inevitable, if you like, organizational cultures don't necessarily allow that to happen in fact might perversely incentivize not having those conversations so getting getting top-down engagement is really important and then related to that I think those organizations that are going to be most successful will work out how to pivot this conversation from being what can instinctively be a very negative risk management-based conversation into an opportunistic conversation. So how do you generate value, business agility, innovation from understanding your own organisation better
0: and having an operational resilience capability? Brilliant. Thank you. That's that's a great way to end uh, how we we can turn this into a positive. So thank you so much. Um, Thank you both. That was a really interesting discussion. Key, a a lot going on here. It's it's not going to disappear. So I I warn you now, you may well be invited back to another podcast over the next year or two to to hear more about this. Um, To our listeners, I hope you've also found this conversation really interesting today. Um, As always, please subscribe to future episodes and do rate and review the series as it helps others to find us. If you'd like to hear more from us on risk and regulation, please also look out for our regular publications on our website, um, where you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter on regulatory developments. And We'll be back next month with our next episode. Thank you.